Good morning, church. It's been a great time together already this morning. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad you're here. As Patrice mentioned, if, if we haven't met, my name is Jordan. I'm the uh, Senior Director of Family Ministries here at Harvest, and I'm privileged to uh, open up God's Word with us this morning. Uh, we are in this short series leading up to Christmas called Three Babies, One Promise, uh, in which we're looking at uh, three children promised in Scripture and what each of them represent in terms of the covenant promise that God made with His people and the covenant promises God has kept for us, His people, throughout the generations and throughout all of history. And, and I was uh, talking with somebody last week who mentioned that there was a small group in our church that was trying to guess the three babies, who we were going to preach on over these three weeks. And some of them got Seth, who Pastor Todd preached on last week. Everybody got Jesus, of course, who we're going to talk about next week. Nobody got this one in the middle. None. And it's hard for me to blame you. I mean, you're looking up there and you see his name right there and you're wondering, what are all of those words? And we'll get there, don't worry. It's not necessarily a name that you hear around Christmas time, and yet the promise that comes from this baby we'll speak of today is one of incredible hope. And our world today is longing for hope, is it not? So many today looking for, aching for, searching for something or someone to bring them a promise of something that might get better someday. And really, there's no time of year that capitalizes on the word hope in our world like Christmas. It's on all the Christmas cards. It's in so many of the Christmas songs that you hear around this time of year. Hallmark has like 500 movies with Christmas and hope in the title. Maybe not that much. I, I, didn't, I didn't Google that for sure because that's certainly not worth my time. But I mean, look, they're, like, they're all the same. Look at them. Here it comes. Wait for it. They're all the same. Ugh. You see, the search for hope becomes a never-ending pursuit for so many people in our world today because our world offers hope wrapped up in, in, in cheap promises like gifts and bells and twinkly lights and the goodwill of humanity. <laughs> Here's the problem. Like all the other things that people look to for hope today, so much about Christmas is tied up in the feelings, in the traditions, in the nostalgia. And all of that goes away when the calendar flips to January. But what's left in its wake is still the diagnosis the marriage issues, the relational discord, the financial struggles, the loss and the emptiness that so many are feeling, it's all still there. And if hope is, as, as we've defined it around here before, if hope is a confident expectation of something better, then what we hope in has to be something dependable. It has to be something that, that transcends all the temporal things that we might look for hope in at Christmas time. Something that stands for us to cling to in the trials and troubles of this life. And that kind of hope is offered to us only by the Lord. 
And that's the kind of hope that we see offered to us in the child promised in Isaiah 7 and 8. We see the temptation for us, even as Christians, those who know what Christmas is really all about, is that even still this becomes commonplace for us. For us to just move through another year, another Christmas, and for the truth of the hope of God's promises made and God's promises kept to just be background noise in all the busyness and craziness of our lives in this season while we go about functionally with our hope in the temporal things, just like the rest of this world. So my prayer, our prayer this morning is that all of us, each and every single one of us here, all of those watching online, follower of Jesus or not, that we would deeply consider this question this Christmas. Will you believe God's promise for an eternal hope? Will you believe God's promise for an eternal hope? And will that truly change things for you? Will that truly transform your lives? Will that truly become the foundation for all that you are and do? And as we wrestle with that, we have to start with this first. We have to recognize what's wrong. Because there is something wrong. There's something wrong for all of us. There's something wrong for every human being in this world. Just like there was something wrong for the people of Israel as we come to Isaiah chapter 7. Look down at verse 1. This is God's word to us this morning. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack on it. Let's set the stage here. All of this is taking place around the year 735 BC. And at this time, the nation of Israel, as we would consider it, is divided in two. We've got a map for you here that that details exactly that. Uh, After King Solomon's reign concluded, uh, the nation split into two with Israel or Ephraim, as it is referenced in this passage and other, or Jacob as well, the northern kingdom being ruled by a man named Jeroboam. The northern kingdom of Israel uh, ran away from the Lord, forsook him, and, and went and did their own thing. And then Rehoboam, King Solomon's son, the rightful heir to the king, uh, kingship of the nation of Israel, took Judah, the southern kingdom. But the two nations are split. And, and fast forward 200 years from the time of Rehoboam and Jeroboam to where we find ourselves now in Isaiah chapter 7. And the northern kingdom of Israel is in an alliance with another nation, Syria, because the superpower of the day, the Assyrians, are bearing down upon them. The Assyrians are, are, are ruling all over, and, and you can see that darker green shade there is the, the kingdom of the Assyrians as they conquered other nations, and it's coming right up against the borders of Israel and Syria and threatening them. And so the, the, the alliance between Israel and Syria, the kings there, as detailed in, in verse 1 for us, they're trying to bring Judah into an anti-Assyrian alliance. They're trying, to, they're trying to rally the nations. They're trying to, to, to uh, consolidate their power so as to resist the, the impending invasion of the, the Assyrians, like I said, the superpower of the day, but Judah, the southern kingdom, refuses. So as such, Syria and Israel seek to war against Judah to force them into an alliance, and so 
the southern kingdom, Judah, and its king, Ahaz, are really between a rock and a hard place at this point. They're surrounded. Now, a little background for us, for us on, on King Ahaz. He's uh, from the line of David. David. King David would have been his uh, great, 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 great grandfather. There we go. And, uh, and he's ruling over Israel, Judah at the time, about 20 years old as we come to our passage this morning. And, and what we know about him, we can read in 2 Kings 16, where we see this. And he, Ahaz, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. So Ahaz, not a good dude. Not leading the way that God called him to. Not leading according to the way of his father and his forefathers. Following the pagan practices of pagan nations. And so, really, the way that he responds when Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel camp just three days march away from Jerusalem as they threaten to invade, the way that he responds, not unusual. Look down at verse 2. When the house of David, Ahaz personifying the house of David, was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the northern kingdom of Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. They were filled with terror, completely afraid. What are we going to do? Syria and Israel are coming. How are we going to defend ourselves? And ultimately, as as this situation unfolds, the question before King Ahaz and the nation of Judah is, who am I going to trust? Who are we going to trust? Will we trust Yahweh, the God of our forefathers, who established the, the throne of King David, who gave incredible promises to him? who has has cared for our nation for hundreds and hundreds of years, or will we trust something or someone else? Will we look somewhere else for help? I don't know, maybe maybe the Assyrians. You see, calling calling on another nation for help at, at this time in history was not like we would think about when we think calling for help. It wasn't like, you know, calling 911 and having emergency service personnel coming to help you out, get you where you need to be, and then leave. To, to call upon another nation for help was to enter into a covenant relationship with them. For Judah to call on the Assyrians, the superpower of the day, for aid would have meant that Judah would have to be subservient to them. Assyria would be their overlords. Judah would have to serve their gods, have to adapt to their culture. And that's what was at stake here for Ahaz. Will we stand as servants of God, obedient to and trusting of him, or will we, ser- we, will we go into service to the service of a pagan nation? And that's the context. That is where we see the Lord send his prophet Isaiah into, and that's where we find ourselves in verse 3. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jeshub, 
your son. Stop there for a moment. Uh, This wasn't God just suggesting that Isaiah take his son for company. This wasn't God just saying, hey, you know what? I kind of want your son to get into this whole profiting thing, so why don't you bring him along with you and, and you can do ministry together. That wasn't it at all. This was very intentional. Don't forget, Ahaz had sacrificed his own son to a pagan god. Now here comes Isaiah, the prophet of the one true God, with his son as a visual reminder of what Ahaz had done. But not only that, Sher Jeshub's name is symbolic. It means a remnant will return. And that's important for two reasons. Number one, the fact that a remnant will remain, a remnant will return is one of hope to say that no matter what happens, there will be a portion of my people that will stay. They will come back. They will return to me physically and spiritually. But it was also a warning. It's not that the whole nation would remain. It's only that a portion, a remnant, a small number will remain. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But the word that God gives to Isaiah It comes in verse four. God says to him, say to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people and the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. I mean, the word that God gives to Ahaz is, is clear. Be careful. Be quiet. In, in the Hebrew, that's literally Be careful to do nothing. Don't worry. Don't fear. Don't let your heart be faint. Why? Because Syria and Israel, this anti-Assyrian alliance coming up against you, they're nothing. They're smoldering stumps of firebrand. They're not even on fire. They're about to be put out. In fact, in 65 years, God says, they're done. They won't stand. They won't prevail against you. It won't come to pass. Stand firm in the faith. Don't fear them, God says. Don't go to Assyria for help. I got this. I mean, verse 7, God's greatness and power and wisdom is on full display. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Understand this, seeing God in the right way, seeing his greatness, his power, his wisdom, his will, his might, paves the way for faith. God will do it. He's strong enough. He's wise enough. The strength and the wisdom of people is nothing compared to our God. But, like Ahaz we are prone to fear. And everything around us in our world today perpetuates that. I mean, think about it for a second. News outlets don't get views and ratings with 
messages and stories of, of peace and everything's okay. I mean, they, they might throw the, you know, palate-cleansing human interest story, like a cat that knows how to play the tuba or something like that in there, but, but what do you see on the news? It's what you need to be afraid of now. It's what's going on around that's bad now. Now, social media influencers don't get followers by painting a balanced picture of what's going on. Balanced social media? <laughs> Politicians don't get support by casting their opponent in, in a positive light. No, they get support. They get your votes by making you afraid of what electing the other person is going to mean for you. Fear gets followers today. And unfortunately, too many people unthinkingly develop their ideas, or worse, their doctrines based on who's yelling at them the loudest. And the problem comes when that causes us to get our eyes off of God and onto our circumstances and onto what's going on around us. Because our propensity our gut reaction as time-bound human beings prone to fear is to look for short-term solutions instead of trusting in the long-term promises of God. God, why won't you heal? God, why won't you take this away from me? God, why is this happening? Why have you not dealt with this yet? Why, God? Why, why, why? Aren't you doing something? Do it now. What God is saying here to Ahaz is you have to rely on faith, not sight. Trust me. Believe in who I am and what I'm doing. If you're not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. A word just as much for us today as it was for Ahaz. Will you believe in my sovereignty, God says? Will you believe, Ahaz, in the covenants that I have made with your house, that I've made to you? Or will you abandon that for a short-term solution by aligning yourself with Assyria? So we've got to recognize what, what's wrong, which should lead us to this secondly. We need to see what's wrong in terms of the human condition. You see it in terms of the human condition. Because let, let, me, let me make something very clear. These were very real threats to the nation of Judah. It was not that they had no reason to be afraid, that's for sure, but God gives them every reason to trust him. I mean, not only does, does he give them the prophecy in, in verses four to nine that we just read, that not only does God tell them, I'm gonna take care of it. In fact, he, gives, he, doesn't, he doesn't just give them the prophecy that he's gonna take care of it. He gives them the timeline. Within 65 years, it's gonna be dealt with. Ahaz, that's probably within your lifetime. I'm gonna deal with it. Not only does God do that, but look down at what he does in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of, your, of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. God says, ask me anything. Ask me to do whatever you want. It could be as, as high as heaven or as deep as Sheol, that is the grave. Ask me to do whatever. Let me prove it to you. Now, now sometimes asking, for a God, asking God for a sign is an indicator of unbelief. 
It can be a way of us saying, prove it, God. Prove it. If you prove it to me, then I'll believe in you. As if our faith is like the carrot on the stick in front of God that he gets if he can somehow prove that he is deserving enough of our faith. And the Bible speaks very clearly against that, by the way. Deuteronomy 6.16, and you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which Jesus himself quotes in the temptation that Satan brings upon him in Matthew chapter 4. You'll remember that. But, but here, it's different. Here, God is inviting Ahaz to ask for a sign. God wants to provide a sign. Ask me, God says, I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want. Go ahead. He gives Ahaz carte blanche access to ask for whatever sign he wants, which is a move of unbelievable grace if you think about what Ahaz has done already. I mean, his kingship was not off to a great start. This guy was following pagan practices. He sacrificed his own kid, and yet here, God responds graciously to him and still says, I'll prove it to you. How does Ahaz respond? Verse 12, but Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, you might think and you might say, well, hey, on its face, good job, Ahaz. Like, you know, way to be a humble servant, way to be obedient. Deuteronomy 6.16, I got it. But that's not it at all. This response by Ahaz is a monumental move of hypocrisy. Ahaz does essentially the exact same thing that Satan does when he tests Jesus in the wilderness. He, in all likelihood, having Deuteronomy 6.16 in his mind, twists scripture to suit the plans that he already has in his heart, which do not include God. Listen, it is not testing God to do exactly what he asks you to do. But here we see Ahaz has made his decision. He has placed his hope for salvation in human power rather than the Lord. He's going to call on Assyria. He's going to enter into covenant with this pagan nation. And all of this gets to the heart of what exists in all of our hearts, which was summed up so eloquently by John Calvin. Man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. We all worship something. And for Ahaz, his fear causes him to put his hope and security in the power of another person. He he forsakes salvation by faith alone for salvation by works, and the works that he is pursuing is the security that comes from the power of a pagan nation. See, we we pump out idols from the factory of our own hearts over and over again, whether it's it's security, whether it's sex, whether it's power, whether it's wealth, whether it's religion. We cannot stop placing our hope in things or in people that give us empty promises of fulfillment. And in doing so, we abandon the God who says, trust me. That's why Isaiah responds to Ahaz's response to himself in verse 13 like this. And he, Isaiah, said, 
Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little that you, for you to weary men that you weary my God also? And one thing I want you to notice there that's significant. In verse 10, Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. In verse 13, we see Isaiah say, Do you weary my God also? Ahaz has made his decision. As the one in in the line of David from his house, the, the latest one to occupy the throne that God himself established, the the next in line that God set up from which the eternal king, the, the Messiah, would come. But unlike David, Ahaz has wearied God, meaning he has tried God's patience. And in saying that I'm not gonna put my God to the test, he essentially does that which he says he's not gonna do. He puts God to the test. And now the Lord will respond to his rejection. And we will do the same as Ahaz when we allow fear or worry or anxiety to have the throne of our hearts and to dictate how we respond. We will do the same when we allow fear or worry or anxiety at what's going on around us to take our eyes off of the Lord and it will cause us to worship at the altar of whatever idol our sinful heart pumps out. I want you to hear what I'm going to say next carefully and, and it comes from my heart with the utmost amount of love. Fear and anxiety and worry is such a massive thing in our world today, so much so that it's almost become trendy to suffer with anxiety. And it leads us to do things like doom scrolling, hopping on social media and scrolling through our feed, looking at all the bad news in the name of being informed. It causes us to medicate improperly, In doing so, we throw up our hands in resignation to allow fear and anxiety rule our hearts, to allow us to grieve over things that haven't even happened yet, which is evidence ultimately of a lack of trust in God. And ultimately, it opens us up to the discipline of God like it did for Ahaz. Unless we see this third, understand the divine remedy. Because God doesn't want you to be ruled by fear or worry or anxiety. God doesn't want the fear of what's going on around you or of what might come for you to lead you to worship at the altar of false gods or false idols or put your trust or hope in something else. So he's given us a remedy. Even though Ahaz denied God's invitation for a sign, God still gives it. And this is where... I know you've been waiting for it. This is where this decidedly un-Christmas message thus far gets more Christmassy. Ready for it? Verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not going to ask for it? Doesn't matter. God's going to give it to you anyway, Ahaz. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. Verse 15, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. God's sign that he promises to give to Ahaz, to the nation of Judah as a whole, is a child. A child who would come that would prove God's faithfulness, that would show his commitment to keep his promises, even when his people are unfaithful. This child would be born of a virgin, named Emmanuel, which means God with us, and would be proof of God's word to his people. And before this child is old enough to discern what is right and wrong, a a, a way of saying before this kid is old enough to reach the age of accountability, when they're able to understand what is good and what is not, the nations of Syria and Israel will be devastated. This prophecy of a child to come in reality has fulfillment in two different children. And as is true in many prophecies that we see throughout Scripture, it has a double fulfillment. And in order for us to understand this a little bit better, I thought it would be necessary to consult the great theological mind of one Grover from Sesame Street. How many, where are my Sesame Street people at? Anybody up in here? Okay. You remember when Grover taught us about distance? You remember that one? When he'd run up to the camera and he would say, thank you, and then he'd run away and he'd say, Excellent, I'm going to resist the temptation to do the voice, it's, it's not good, right? But, but that's the idea, right? That's the idea, that the child to come had both a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And, and while it's, it's widely debated among scholars, and there are faithful Bible-believing scholars way smarter than me on, on many different sides of this, it seems most clear that the near fulfillment of this prophecy is a son who would come to the prophet Isaiah, Skip down with me to chapter 8, verse 3. And I, Isaiah, went to the prophetess, that is his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name Meir Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Isaiah and his wife have a son. Little Bible trivia for you, longest word in all of scripture is this name. Yeah, it's got hyphens, but there you go. But this child would be named Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Yes, that's how you pronounce it. And yes, you thought you named some of your kids creatively, okay? This, like, this is an epic name. And, uh, and by the way, God takes all the angst. Did you, did you notice? God takes all the angst for this family out of what they're going to name their kid, right? We've, we've got a lot of young couples who are having children in this church. And I know that there have been discussions of, what are we going to name this baby? And, and, oh, I like that name. What does that mean? And then you discover it and you're like, that's a terrible meaning. We've got to make one up on our own. But God just takes that angst all away for Isaiah and his wife. His name will be Meher Shalal Hashbah. And notice what I want you to see here, the proof of why this, it seems that he is the near fulfillment of this prophecy is the parallel between chapter 7 and chapter 8. We see in chapter 7 that before the child knows the difference between good and evil, Israel and Samaria will be defeated. We see in chapter 8, before the child knows how to say mommy or daddy, Israel and Syria will be defeated. And in doing so, God is wonderfully reminding his people of his promise to deliver. He's giving them a sign. 
He's giving them a clear sign in the form of a human being, which they can look to and see God is with us. We don't need to fear these nations. In a short time, while while this baby is still a toddler, these nations will be taken care of. It's God again saying, trust me. But of course, as, as you'll notice, if you're an astute Bible reader, there are some clear objections that would come to this mere interpretation of of the prophecy that a child would be born of a virgin and his name would be called Emmanuel. First of all, the child's name is Meher Shalal Hashbaz. I wonder how many more times I'm going to be able to say that. Uh, His name wasn't Emmanuel, very obviously, sure. Um, But no doubt that, like we mentioned already, the, the child, Isaiah's son, and the prophecy attached is evidence that God would be with his people. But more significantly, the objection raised to this is that Isaiah's wife was not a virgin. We read in chapter 7 that they had a son already. So how do we understand this? Well, Hebrew prophecy uh, was, the way that Hebrew prophecy worked was that there was often multiple fulfillments. We've said it already. There was a near fulfillment and there was a far fulfillment. It wasn't, and it wasn't expected or assumed that in the near fulfillment of prophecy, all of the details would be fulfilled immediately. Okay, another analogy to help you with this one, the best I've heard is, you know, say you're driving toward the mountains. Or let, let's say you, you've, you flew into Calgary, you rented a car, you're, you're driving on the highway west toward the Rocky Mountains out toward BC. As you're driving from far off, looking at the mountains, it looks as if they're side by side. It looks as if they are, they're flat right in front of you. You can go from one peak to the other, right? They're right there. But then, of course, as you get closer, you realize that those peaks have significant space in between. And what may have looked like one mountain peak to you when you were far away, when you get closer, it's revealed that that was the tallest peak far off. And in reality, there's multiple peaks closer than that one that are just shorter that you couldn't see because they were in the shadow of the larger peak. And such is the case with prophecies. There are multiple layers of fulfillment and they're sometimes spread out with years in between. And that is the case here. There is going to be a child. At first, it's Isaiah's son who is evidence of God with us. Even though his wife is not a virgin, this is a partial fulfillment, not a complete fulfillment. We'll come back to that in a second. But all of this said, and that was a lot of information to dump on you, I recognize. Thanks for tracking with me. Here we can clearly see what God's divine remedy is for the human condition of us sinfully trusting in other things. Because God details through Isaiah's prophecy of what is to come next for Ahaz and for Judah because they have failed to trust in God, because they trusted the Assyrians for their deliverance. As such, the Assyrians and their king will be the agent by which God uses to bring his judgment upon his nation. Chapter 7, verse 17 says, The Lord will bring upon you, speaking to Ahaz, and your people and your father's house, such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is how God deals with those who oppose him. In this case, he, he makes, by making one of God's enemies, the Assyrians, their ally, Ahaz and Judah oppose God, and in turn, God opposes them and brings judgment upon them by making the one they're allied with their enemy. God allows them to experience the full weight of consequences from their decisions. Skip down to chapter 8, verse 5. We read this. 
The Lord spoke to me, this is Isaiah, again, because this people has, refu- have, has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks and it will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Assyria will move in. They will defeat Israel and Syria. But it would not stop there. And Isaiah uses the analogy of a river that that spills over its banks and threatens the crops and the livelihood of those near to it to what the Assyrians will do to Judah. They will not stop at the border of Israel. But the military of the kingdom of Assyria and, and its warriors will spill into the land of Judah. They will consume the nation. It will go all the way up to its neck, the Lord says. But even in the midst of his punishing Ahaz and Judah for their rebellion, God is still graciously fulfilling his purpose. Make no mistake, God deals significantly and seriously with sin, as evidenced here in what he prophesies that comes to pass for Judah. And yet, even in their disobedience, even in their lack of trust, the water that is the nation of Assyria and their military prowess does not completely consume Judah. The water rises only to the neck. And this is where the promise of the prophecy of Isaiah's first son, shared Jessup, comes to pass. A remnant will return. Because even in his very clear punishing of this nation, For their lack of faith, God won't allow his people to be destroyed. And the son, Meher Shalel Hashbaz, is evidence of this. In the midst of the difficulty for the land of Judah, God was still working. He had not abandoned his people. And maybe you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're like Ahaz. You have denied the Lord. You have given yourself, your life, your decisions to something or someone other than God and and he's given you up to those decisions. And you're experiencing the punishment of the Lord for your sinful actions, the consequences of what you have chosen. And that's hard and that might be hopeless for you today. Or maybe you're here and and you're still pursuing the Lord. You're seeking to be as faithful to him as you can, but you are experiencing hardship in your life right now as a result of the sinful world that we live in. Like it was for Isaiah, like it was for those in Judah who still pursued the Lord, they also had to experience the hardship of their nation being invaded. And the temptation for them was to give up, to forsake trust in God to allow the grief of the overtaking of their people and their land to consume them wherever you find yourself today. Recognize this. The fact that you are here in this place under the authority of the word of God, hearing it proclaimed to you is the divine remedy of God's grace being extended to you today wherever you are. 
For those of you like Ahaz who have abandoned the Lord and who have given yourself up because of fear or anxiety or worry to the worship of other things, the Lord is extending his grace to you today to come back, to come to him. If you're here today and you are struggling over the weight and burden of sin of of this world and the hardship that exists in it, the Lord is saying, I'm still working. Trust me. There is hope. God's promises remain. God's purposes will come to pass. The birth of Meher Shalal Hashbaz was a sign that God was going to be with them, but he was not the full picture. He was but a shadow of the full picture which was to come. And for us here on this side of history, we see the full picture. And we see this finally, that we all need to embrace the redemptive plan. God has given us a divine remedy and that divine remedy is his plan to redeem his people because the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that God made in Isaiah chapter seven of a child to be born of a virgin whose name would be called Emmanuel was the baby laid in the manger. Was Jesus Christ the son of God? Literally God in human flesh who came and dwelt among us. It's why Matthew in his gospel quotes the prophecy we find in Isaiah chapter 7, Matthew 1, 22 and 23. All this took place, the birth of Jesus, all that happened took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet and here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. In the middle of the trouble and the trial that existed in Isaiah's time for God's people, the Lord was still working. In the middle of the trouble and the trial that came for the nation of Judah for hundreds of years because of Ahaz's decision, God was still working. In the midst of the trouble and the trial of your life, God is still working. It's from the line of David, even though Ahaz was faithless. God in his wisdom, love, and grace was working out his will to bring about the true fulfillment of Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. And the arrival of Jesus is is the, the high point of God's redemptive plan. It's the climax. The promise made through the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before finds its culmination as the baby Jesus arrives onto this earth. God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, to come and be conceived in a virgin's womb, to be born, to live a sinless and perfect life, to go to the cross for you and for me, to have his blood shed and body broken, that he may be the suitable sacrifice for sin, to be placed in a tomb after he died and to be there for three days, but then to rise again on the third day, to conquer sin and death and to never die again, that you and I can be forgiven and freed and welcomed into the family of God. And this is why we trust God. This is why we can have eternal hope no matter what we face. God has done it. He promised he would, and he accomplished it. Jesus, and who he was and what he did. And what he promises to us, namely forgiveness and freedom and life forever, he will do. Why? Because our Lord has a perfect track record of faithfulness. 
He will never fail. What God has accomplished in sending God with us, Jesus, is better than anything that this world can offer. So we don't need to fear. So we don't need to look for for anything or, or anyone else to trust. Instead, we respond the way that God calls his prophet Isaiah to respond in chapter 8, verse 11 to 13. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. And warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. Don't worry about the things that they're worried about. Don't fret over things they're fretting about. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. The antidote to fear of the world, to fear of man, is not not fearing at all, it's fearing the right thing. The antidote to the fear and the worry and the anxiety that you're feeling right now in your life that is consuming you and causing you to choose things that you shouldn't be choosing is not not being afraid, it's fearing God. It's having such a deep reverence for the holiness of God that he is all for you. So if you're saved, if you're forgiven, if you have the eternal hope of life in Jesus Christ alive in you, you do so because God has saved you. He's given you the remedy. He's put in place the redemption plan to save you even while you were still a sinner. So trust in that. Hope in that. And allow that reality to wash over you and cultivate in you a deep and abiding reverence for the holy God who saved you and welcomed you in as his sons and daughters. And let that rid you of any fear of man. Trust God for the eternal hope you have, no matter what comes your way, no matter what you're dealing with today. Even in the darkness and difficulty of this world, cling to him. You have hope in Emmanuel, God with us, and he is working. It might not feel like it to you. It might feel like the answer to your prayers has been no. God, God, heal. Not right now. God, God, take care of this. Not right now. God, God, help me with this. Not right now. But you can trust because we've seen his track record of faithfulness. God is moving. God is working. God will accomplish that which he has set out in his will and wisdom and love to do. You can trust that follower of Jesus. And if you're not saved, if you're far from God living in the rebellion of your own sin, if you're living in fear, worshiping at the altar of your own idols, if this Christmas season you are far from God, embrace the redemptive plan that God has put in place for you. The hope you're chasing after that's fleeting and failing you, God offers the perfect hope. The one you truly need. Receive the salvation by faith available to you now. If you're saved, rejoice in God's eternal hope for you. If you're not, repent of your sin and your rebellion and turn from your life of disobedience to the faithful one who receives all who come to him in faith. This Christmas, loved ones, see the problem 
recognize the problem in your own life and see it in terms of the human condition. But understand God's divine remedy for you and embrace the redemptive plan to believe God's promise for an eternal hope. How will you respond to Emmanuel, God with us, the baby in the manger? Let me pray. Father, as, as, as your servant Mary, the earthly mother of Jesus, said when Gabriel came to her, so we say this morning, may it be so according to your word. And we, we are a people struggling with darkness, darkness in our own lives, darkness in this world around us. Some of us wandering aimlessly, afraid and consumed with our own sin, bouncing between one thing to another in a desperate search for something to hope in. Others very aware of our own weakness and in pursuit of you, warring against our flesh in this world. And we need your light, Jesus. We need your hope. So would you flood our hearts with more of you? Remind us of your promises. Consume us with trust in you to believe these things and to cling to them in faith. Jesus, you are God with us. You are our hope. We bow our lives, we fix our eyes on you, Jesus Christ, our King. You are our security, you are our life, you are our victory, and we pray that you would make these things so in our lives, Spirit. That we may glorify you in all that we are and do. Thank you for this time in your word and for saving us. We pray in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.